BizQuick podcast hits on the struggles and advantages of being an entrepreneur. It's for anyone who's made the commitment to burn the boats and not look back. Are you a busy entrepreneur or small business owner trying to do it all? Then this podcast is for you. Corey and Julie will take you through the details of building a strong business. Hit the subscribe button and gear up for another episode of BizQuick Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to BizQuick. I'm Corey. I'm Julie. And on today's show, we've got an extra special episode for you. We've got two guests, and Julie and I aren't going to bore you with our conversation in the front. We're going to just dive right in. We've got Callie Keen. He is with many businesses, K-Form, Red Blue Collective. He's got the uh, End Hype podcast, and then um, we'll put the uh, in the show notes the 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 link for everybody out there who's listening to this to go connect with Callie. And then we have Mitch Taylor on as well. He is uh, one of the owners of Pascots, which are playful mascots. I believe that's what it's short for. And we're going to talk about product development today. Um, and Julie, you are the odd, odd man out Oh my out God, today. I was just going to say, if we were going to play a game, one of these things is not like the other, it would be me. Like y'all are like tech grads. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a loser I am. <laughs> For many reasons. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> so welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, uh, let's dive right in. So Mitch uh, has a couple of products out there for his business, Pascots, um, and he's gone through that whole process of developing products. Uh, the really complicated part of getting things licensed from, uh, by the NCAA, which is really tough. Um, and Callie's a product development expert. So I think we're going to jump into Mitch's experience uh, developing his products and then Callie's going to shit on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's going to, he's going <laughs> to offer Mitch some guidance to help him improve the process over time. And our listeners as well, for anybody out yeah. there who's developing a product, don't, don't make the mistakes Mitch did and listen to Callie. No, no, I think that you need to rephrase that because you made it sound like he, we should, they shouldn't listen to Callie. Okay, yes. Listen to Callie <laughs> and don't make the mistakes that Mitch did. There we go. Yes. All right, let's dive in. Okay, so um, when we started out with Pascots, we had the idea to create um, basically a Disney-fied version of all the collegiate mascots out there. Um, and so in our design process, um, we actually came together. There, I have two other team members as co-founders, so uh, Mike McBreen and Pete Sheehan. Pete Sheehan's also a tech grad, um, but we, we came together with the, the concept that we had to completely redesign all of our products. And the initial concept of that was creating a cartoonified product for that. So I initially reached out to a friend who had done artwork. So we created the artwork design for that. And then Mike McBreen, who was our partner as well, he was actually the one that had all the experience, over 20 years of experience working with Nike, uh, Funko, a few other major brands. Um, so he had that relationship with uh, Chinese manufacturers and global manufacturers. So I was lucky enough to be able to jump in on that side and basically have everything set up for me. Um, so what we did was we basically translated those cartoon characters into 3D models. And the great thing about working with these Chinese manufacturers and what we run through is a hub. So um, basically they find all the sourcing for the factories that can do the work for us. Um, that's 
what I assume is what it tends to be like when you're working in global distribution like that. Um, but when I reached out with them, I basically would pitch them the concepts, give them the specs, designs, the sizes, what we're looking for. Um, and what we started out with our first product with the pacifier holder, um, that needed to meet certain specifications on size and weight. And so what we did for that is we used some models that our children were already using out there and basically reverse engineered it from that. So we translated our cartoon characters into the size specifications. What does a child need to use for that? And so we were running with initially a lot of plush model products, and then we would build out from there and we have bibs, silicone products, we'll be working with apparel. But we actually jumped in with one of the hardest, you know, products to make as far as like plush goes and, you know, from all of our different um, collections that we wanted to build out from there. Um, so we jumped in at the hardest, you know, part of it, but I think, the factories that we work with, they really go out of your way to, you know, I was completely new in the process. Like my, my background is really just in hotels and restaurants and, you know, kind of working the industry there. So I really had no production design um, experience at all. So um, they really reached out, helped me, and we went back and forth on, um, you know, just, just going through all the bumps there and learning process. In terms of like not using, let's say you are a consultant in the product sure. design uh, process, what uh, mistakes were probably made by going directly to the manufacturer to try and make your product? Well, so there's some simple elements here, uh, growth versus scale and misconceptions about growth as well, is that there's a temptation to think that by doing more things, we're going to have a faster growing company. But in reality, the biggest obstacles to overcome, especially in a physical product company, is understanding the actual business operations and development. So how do we market? How do we inventory? How do we work with manufacturers? And we can learn those lessons with one product versus many products. And so we're actually prototyping the business itself. What roles do we need to have in place? What processes do we need to have in place? What are our true costs? So that's, that's one piece. We wanna start simple. We want to do one dumb thing and just do it until we can't do it anymore. I feel the same way about customers is that if you look at how many, say, Virginia Tech grads there are, and I secure that licensing, there's enough of them to build a very robust seven-figure business on one product, one customer, one channel. So the biggest mistake that people do is they say, hey, I'm going to get 80 collegiate licenses. I'm going to do five products. But what happens is each one of them stands in the way of the other one, and they have different development cycles, they have different capital requirements, they have different design teams, and, and you know, market requirements, like, like he was saying, is the regulatory requirements. So the longest tail in all of those products ends up being what the fastest that anything can get to market. And then it's more difficult to penetrate the market, it's more difficult to buy because you're holding inventory. There's there's lots of uh, difficulties that are in complexity. So something I would say is complexity does not equal value. Usually we just want, we want to put all of our energy in like a, a spear. And then we, we scale by saying we have the pattern that works. We did it for tech or XYZ, and then we're just going to replicate. And that's, that's what scale is, is taking something, building the systems and processes, building the approach, and then replicating laterally to then grow grow revenue 
Um, so it, that everything that he said is like absolutely what happens. It's what everybody, everybody has a million ideas and they want to do half of them right now. And uh, I just do one thing. So. And, so, and if I could add, so as far as the development process, that that part was simple for me because, like I said, the factories, they're there to help you and they're there to reach out, especially the product development sourcing companies that we run through. Like they're the hub. They find all the factories that work for you. The, the difficulties that we ran into, and it's basically summing up what you just said, but I had to find out all of that the hard way, was the licensing process. It basically it put me in a mindset of feeling like I had to do everything at once. And I went into the collegiate market, which is divided 150 ways. And like you said, you come into those product costs, you come into upfront costs for licensing. So you're talking 600 to $1,000 per school, multiply that by, you know, X amount of schools, and you're already at that cost before even going out the door to sell it. So and then once you get in that hole, then you feel like now you have to make up for that in different ways and, and you just stretch yourself out. So really getting back to the fundamentals, like you said, create that spear and that's where we're at now. Um, so the development side wasn't difficult at all coming from having no background knowledge. It was the licensing process. and yeah, we, I call it, the, I, I say that we live in a post impossible world. And in general, unless we're forging new physics or new science, it's, it's, not the difficulty in getting something manufactured, it's getting it here and selling it. So it is like, I'm a product guy. So I, I'm the person that designs things and I'll be the first to tell people that's usually not where their bottleneck is with their biggest obstacle. It's that running the business itself, we need to get there as soon as possible with something that people want, figure out who wants to buy it, how they buy. And uh, most importantly, who owns the audience that, who already owns that audience and how do I just partner with them or use them as a sales channel? How do I get in with them? Because I think ads are kind of, they're kind of lame. Uh, really successful companies use partnerships and that's how they get additional funding. That's how they get bought out. That's how they grow really quickly because they use infrastructure of existing businesses and partners. And we can't get there until we have one killer product for one group of people. We know exactly, we have all the feedback, we can prove validation and then present it to them like hey you should get involved you should carry this you should sell this to your list we'll sell some you know we'll co-market we'll co-brand we'll do do xyz and yeah the the there's just such an allure to say like hey we have a robust line of products and then you see what's happened in the software world where really successful software is developed where it has one just like just payroll and it starts in it and gusto really great payroll and then it expands we've we've seen the facebook turn into facebook we've seen a bookstore amazon turn into amazon this kind of glob of businesses but for some reason with physical products people try to boil the ocean and uh, it just ends up sucking up a lot of time and money i have a question on um so physical products when you're talking about the manufacturing side of it We've heard Mitch mention a couple of times going to China to get the product manufactured. How does a new product company make the decision to go either have it manufactured overseas and then deal with the supply chain issues and all of your funding being tied up versus getting something manufactured here in the United States? Like what sort of guidance do you give on that, Callie? Sell better products. <laughs> that's that's my biggest, this is my biggest thing is that Look, for our life, 
for our effort, for our energy, for our spirit, whatever you want to think of it as, it takes them the same amount of time for me to lead a team that's selling a $200 product as a $2 product. It takes the same amount of time for my people to put it in a box. It's just there's a whole lot less margin. I can't write those thank you notes. I can't have a nice box. I can't have a lot of things that I want to have as a premium brand. I want to be top of mind in anything that I get into. I want to be the first person or the only person that people think of when they think of XYZ. And that's in K-Form. That's how we are in RF Shielded Server Racks. We are the leader in the world in that. We're the leader in all of the weird applications for it. Uh, Red Blue Collective, I want to be the first person people think about when they think of physical products. And when I launch e-commerce businesses or we work with clients, we look at it and say, why not? People are selling $300 t-shirts. Why do you have to sell a $3 t-shirt? What is that What is that true cost to be to your life? And there's, there's some things that we just can't make in America anymore. But in general, you have to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, ease, use a sourcing company. You're going to go really quickly. The thing is going to be made in Vietnam or China or, or Southeast Asia. Uh, if we want to reduce the cost more, gain some operational excellence and go right to the factory itself. But then you have a whole other host of problems that you realize like, hey, these people are really helping me. <laughs> this is not easy. And uh, the the other is to just say, could the product, what, what if the product was twice as expensive, right? What if that pacifier was $49 and that I could have somebody in America or in Mexico private label a product that we already have that's super high quality and we can just u- leverage the collegiate brand to then get to the market with a with a you know four or five x uh, bill of materials multiple and that we can start there because your volumes won't be high enough for a custom product like I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that that's the case but you know we use thought experience is that possible and sometimes it's not. It's just not. Like, uh, and we have to change the, our product idea, or we have to say China. It is. <laughs> well, and that's one of the problems that we encounter. We were helping Mitch try and find a company or a manufacturer for his bibs, and it just simply like it does not exist. A company in the Americas that will print, uh, you know, that makes the blank bibs and then will print on them. And so that was just an issue that that we had no choice. We had to go to China. And I want to jump into that. But before we do, I want to tell everybody about Certivium. Uh, That's our business that we have that's all about customer engagement, customer service, social media management. We are an extremely affordable option that uh, any small business out there looking to grow. If you need to help maintain the most important part of your business, your customers, contact us. Check it out on Certivium.com. That will be in the show notes. And we're going to take a quick break and hopefully come back and talk more about products. Hopefully. Is there a chance we might not come back? I don't know why I said that. Okay. Well, let's come back. (laughs) All right. And we're back from break. See, hopefully we did come back. (laughs) All right. We've got Callie Keen and Mitch Taylor with us, and we are talking product development. And Corey just made a comment about trying to find a U.S. manufacturer for Mitch, right before we went to break, and that we were unable to, so we there was no option for Mitch but to go overseas and get it, and now he's waiting on some cargo ships. Yeah, so um, I would going back to uh, Callie's 
you know, spearhead comment and really focusing on one thing. I would say on the alternative, if you have that roadmap set up of just having a product line that you you're looking for, and especially with my experience of Pascot's jumping in pandemic hits, and there's a lot of, you know, just things thrown out there that you don't anticipate coming. The bibs, just having that idea out there is what saved us because now you're looking at, okay, I have this idea coming up. I need to maybe pivot and jump over into that. And even though we were looking at the bibs as still an overseas manufacturer, that's something that's very condensed. They can print that out quickly and um, get that out because of all the bottlenecks we were dealing with in production and shipping times. We're now able to air freight those bibs over and we're able to produce them at a rapid manufacturing time. So that is something that saved us just because we had that roadmap out there. And now we're pivoting to say, hey, let's make that our focus and then build off from there and continue to look at different options like, say, Mexico, moving to the mainland. But um, I would throw that out there as just a strategy of just having a roadmap there to, to be able to bounce off of and remain flexible. Yes, yeah, certainly having light, uh, easily packable products is important now because of the costs and time of logistics. It's really it's really difficult. I mean, there are soft good manufacturers in the U.S. There are, um, it's just lining up the costs. It it really shocks people manufacturing things in the United States. And I, I am a U.S. manufacturer, but going in and saying, okay, well, your volumes won't be 10, it might be 10,000. So putting that on a timeline as well, saying this is important to us, but we ha we're providing jobs for people. We're providing livelihoods. So to say, if it's a premium product, we can afford U.S. labor, but also if it's higher volume, we're very we're really good at automation, creating creating products at at volume. But it yeah it this is like every single product. This is a spreadsheet. I know Corey's just thinking like this is going to be a great spreadsheet, right? Yes. But we <laughs> we we have to crunch the numbers and see if it makes sense. So it's not there's no like fast and hard. I'm not going to tell anybody that I've I've cracked the code here on on what, what to do. It's really it's just very situational. Well, and one of the other problems that a lot of people don't uh, I don't know if they don't consider they may not consider is that even if I'm using uh, a U.S. based manufacturing plant, they might be getting their raw materials from China from India, from somewhere else, that's... Highly likely. Yeah, so that that's just going to be the... Like, th the same problems are going to happen, and now it's you're just dealing with the middleman that's having those problems instead of going straight to the source. Um, but I want to go back to talking about having one product, having that uh, that initial, that, that launch versus having a lot of products. Because in my mind, and I understand why people get sucked into this, is if you were launching, let's say, a brand like Pascot's, you don't want to have that like empty storefront feel. You want like you want somebody to walk in and, and feel like they've got choices, they've got options. There's a lot of things out there, and, and not just one product. So I, I I don't know if I have a, a question there, or like how do you just like how do you justify just going with that one product outside of just numbers? Right. So this is is an interesting approach, but you'll see lots of starting Shopify sites or even people moving onto other platforms to sell their product that are single product or very tightly focused, say single customer or single product, like multi-customer um, offerings. Uh, 
So there's a lot of ways to just to be able to test and try this, say, let's get started. Again, I think marketing is a very similar, uh, has a very similar problem is that people want to be omnipresent. They want to have a fancy website. They want to have a, a, you know, a salesperson or BDR and they want to do all these things. And in reality, if, if I have, uh, if I just start talking to people and they say, Hey, you know, my, my cousin, Mary, she's selling tons of Virginia tech stuff on Etsy already. You say, great. Can I talk to her and say, Hey, I see that you're selling kids clothes or bibs and I'm, or, you know, X, you know, the, the product that you're selling something different than, than her, that conversation. And then the 10 exact same conversations like that, that's the thing that I want you to know your numbers, be able to talk to somebody about, be able to develop that maybe eventually as a partner. But simplicity is speed, right? Because if you knew, okay, it's $600 or $1,000 to get the licenses, this is how the process of the license goes, and you had money from an initial sale or you had some letters of intent or you got really positive feedback from that to say that I'm going to then uh, move laterally and then get 10 more licenses, you could go very quickly. Um, so that's just my, again, it's very contextual what somebody is trying to do, but I have uh, people that are doing private label products in automotive and they're doing 20 products for multiple different vehicles. I'm like, we should just make one thing or make three things. And I have somebody making a couple of uh, clean tech products and we have they did the same thing with features, but then they also created a whole different product. And then they were like, we need an app for this one. And then we need a server architecture that combines all these and then this. And it's been three years. They still don't have a product that's delivered to the customer because in, instead of just doing something simple and moving forward with the thing that people wanted, they they were like, it's going to be better. It's going to be even better. I'm like, I don't know. I uh, something that's not done isn't very good and done sometimes is perfect. It's like exactly what you need. So what's the, what's the timeline? Um, I don't know if you're going to be able to <clears throat> quantify this or not, Kelly, but if I go to market with 20 products mm-hmm. um, versus going with one, what's the difference in timeline before I'm actually able to really start to scale based on growth and like true growth and numbers versus one way versus the other? Yeah, I look at it. So it depends on complexity, but even a simple product, I don't like to give anybody a roadmap that's shorter than three months. It doesn't matter how simple it is. Um, But in general, something that's robust before I want to get it into the broad world, the outside world, we might have a private launch. We might have be talking to our, our friends and family, people in our community. But I look at things like this, six months, 12 months, 18 months. And it's just level level of complexity. You can make pretty much anything in 18 months. Um, very rare is there an outlier that's beyond an 18-month time period of getting a polished product and a plan to, to push it out to the market. But uh, yeah, in general, I would look at a product like this and say, we could get one in hand in 30 days, you know, four to six weeks maybe. 
but that doesn't mean that we'd be ready to just blast it out for a launch. So to be safe, I'd make a 90-day roadmap that's going to get us to testing, that's going to allow us to have a feedback cycle, get another round of the product, and then, boom, you're at the six months. So, Mitch, knowing what you know now and things that are or were within your control, what are some of the mistakes you made along the way that you wish you could go back and change? I would say the first thing was going after too many licensees. So um, I was trying to go for multiple schools when what I should have done is go for a a handful of surrounding core products with one school and build out from there. Um, the trouble with us was that we were a brand new company. So usually when you're doing the licensing, you have a core product, say you make belts or belt buckles, and then you want to slap a label on that. You have your income coming in from your just general products that you're, you're already creating. And then you add that on top of that. We were coming in as a solely licensing product. So, um, we felt like we had to jump out of the gate, spread wide and work that way when, you know, um, the one thing we did do correctly, I think, was leverage multiple products with the same factory and using the same materials and scaling them. So um, I think there's a little hybrid in there. I completely understand where Kelly's coming from. When I coming from the sales side, when I was out in the market, one, a lot of schools just judging on their past history and allowing applications to come through, they want to see a footprint with multiple products that they're in their stores. Um, this, the companies tend to do better when they have, you know, multiple purchase products, you know, all together in a collection, like say, if you're making different t-shirts or you're making different products there and you're all on the shelf together, they like that. Um, usually single products tend to not make it over time just with the licensing costs and, and so forth. Um, but it was going in there and actually creating that differentiating value of, a surrounding core idea of having different products that just aren't out there and creating um, products that are unique. Um, so I think we did it correctly there. What I should have done also is shopped around more for different factories that can provide better better value in different aspects. So shipping times, better minimums. Uh, minimums are a huge thing to, to gain leverage on when you're pushing that out into the market. Um, but yeah, I think our biggest mistake was just trying to spread too thin too quickly um, and getting too excited about the process and, and having too many ideas going, making everything flashy instead of just running the core fundamentals of, you know, just getting out there, hitting the streets, talking to people, um, getting in the market that way um, instead of just having the brand carry your product, right? Sure. So, um one thing that I want to do now, because I know that you're a huge fan of Cali and his podcast and hype podcast. Um, and you have the product guru here on our podcast. What's one question that you want to ask Cali? I want to know one question Cali wants to ask me. Oh, yeah, let's do that. then. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Cause uh, I, my thing is I've listened to so many of Cali's podcasts. He's answered so many of my questions already. So. I appreciate that. But to put me on the hot seat. So for, for me, there's a, there's a lot of concept things that are important. And, you know, looking at this and that, that focus philosophy is big for me. I think with you, it's more an extension of having one offer. So you have like one sentiment or one f- need that you're, you're repeatedly filling. And that, that makes sense. But 
when we move past this, I always like to get into the numbers with people. And I think that knowing your numbers is, is one of those things. I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast because it's not entertaining, right? <laughs> but when we actually work with people, I'm shocked. I'm shocked generally is like customer acquisition costs, what their logistics costs are, what their inventory costs are. So as you evolve as a business, have you started to look at what all those numbers, what you thought they would be, and then what they actually are? And I understand that things have changed significantly, but um, how comfortable are you looking at those kind of business analytics and operational numbers? Well, I think it's the perfect timing for that because now as we start to understand the reality of how, and like you said, things are still changing, pandemics and and so forth, and just global realignment um, on how we source those products and get them to market in the timing. Um, that is something that we want to revisit because now we can have those numbers realistically in front of us and say, hey, here's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. Here's what we should actually look at. And I think my question to you would be looking at once we sit down with those numbers is looking at how fast do we scale, how fast, like what's the ratio, the cash flow models that we want to run um, because that makes a big difference. Um, you know, running like how lean do you want to run? How fast do you want to just get these products out there? Because if you're looking at great returns, you just don't want to get too excited again. I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into as well as they say, this, they don't know what replicates or, or at what scale does that replicate once you get past certain zones. Um, and with the college model, you have 150 of those, right? And there could be some sheer cliffs here and there that you just don't foresee. And especially with physical products, that leads you to dumping a lot of you know money into inventory that's not helping to turn on that. So we were joking about this before, right before the podcast, but in all seriousness, looking at how you spend money, don't laugh at me, guys. Oh, no, I'm How laughing because I just typed it in the uh, the chat to, to Julie. <laughs> yeah, so capital allocation in inventory is one of the biggest levers that you can realistically have in a, in a maturing, growing business. Because what you end up doing is imagine that you, you do establish that partner and they're like, we love it. You already have this license. What if you made a new product like XYZ? And this happens every time. Every business that I've worked with, this this scenario happens, and they don't have the money because it's tied up in a warehouse with stuff. And as you spread your energy thin, what you're doing is you're signing up yourself for inventory right? because the more products, the more licenses, the more inventory, and you almost have to treat each of these things like a little micro business and say, here is my onboarding process. Here is my boot up process. Here is how I know that inside of this vertical, I'm making or losing money. This is my liquidation process. And so you can, you can move quickly. You know what? This is how fast inventory turns. So I need X percentage. If, if it takes me eight weeks to get stuff, I need eight weeks plus 20% of the inventory if it's being held and it's dropping below what the average you want for your cash flow is, how do we incentivize or how do we liquidate it? What partner, you know, so when we start playing this game, when I work with people, they're like, yeah, I have this new idea or I, I have this partner that wants to do this thing, but I don't have any money. And then we look at, we, we look at their inventory and say by shifting from eight weeks to four weeks in their supply chain, now they, 
they've freed up four weeks of inventory that's required across all of their products. And so that ends up being millions and millions of dollars for, for a business. Because I just said, oh, well, that's roughly half of your inventory. Now you have a smaller warehouse. It's easier to pick and, and pack. You have less stuff sitting on the shelf. If you do liquidate, your risk exposure is lower. So this is where we get like deep and nerdy and things. But this is what, what actually running the business looks like. And it's a massive lever because you could just free up a million bucks and then jump into another another product or another opportunity when it pops up. So. And I, I think that also goes back to Corey's question of what was a mistake that we have made. And on top of spreading thin, it's I think a lot of entrepreneurs go out there and think they have that million di- dollar idea right out the, the gate and that everyone's going to line up and buy it right away. So you kind of look at it as I'm going to sell a million products. So how can I get the best deal on that million products? And you start to look at things as what's my best cost and how can I get the price of that product down so I can get my margins up? Yep. But you don't think about how much those, if you have a, a million of those products, I don't care if they're a dollar, that's a million dollars tied up. And what I found is it's better to pay a little bit more for each product and just have a little bit of them out there and, and test that way. Don't worry about if your margins aren't perfect, you're going to wor- worry about scaling down the road. Yep. But you, you, you have to analyze your risk as saying, you know, having inventory is risk. Like, you know, just oh, sitting, yeah. that's risk. And that's the biggest risk possible because you're not liquid, right? And you can cancel orders and pay partials. You can do lots of things. Once it's sitting there, it, it is 100% risk. Or, I mean, that's why it's an investment, right? But saying, I, I would rather pay for a sample and get it immediately. I would rather pay more and have low MOQs. Um, I can always switch suppliers, especially for simple products, but if I have to buy 10,000 of something, most likely it really doesn't matter what that 10,000, if it was a dollar, I'd be like, that's too much money. Yeah. So we're getting close to the end of the podcast here, but one of the things that I know was a huge, uh, a home run for you or so to speak, or will be a home run when we get there is landing, uh, fanatics and that other, uh, company that I can't remember right now, but like getting some major retailers on board that are going to carry your product. What was that process like working with some of the the big players in the, in the college so, gear? So the larger, and, and I think a lot of people on the sales side understand this, you know, the, the smaller mom and pops run fast and speedy. You're going to have small, obviously smaller quantities running with them, but that gets your foothold in the market. And then the larger ones run slower. So you're talking, um, even just licensing processes, schools and and large retailers, they have a set process. They have annual budgets. They have to go through everything. So they're ta- they're thinking in quarters. And usually, when you swing around in January, is when they're going out to all the trade shows and kind of planning out. So you want to get your foot in the door, um, probably like the December before. Um, so if anyone's trying to get in the licensing process, just understand get your name out there to these guys so that they have you lined up as that item that they want for the year, because otherwise they're going to say, well, I already bought, you know, this, your, your same product from a competitor for the year. Right. 
the the thing that happened with us is I had to get out there and I put about 20,000 miles on the road talking to these people in person because we had such a unique idea. And right when I got back home, they all said they loved it. And then the pandemic hit. So literally two years later down to the month, now they're all ready to go again. And I had established those relationships before. But for them, it's really you're sending out samples, you're getting in front of them, you're presenting yourself as a person and you're providing value um, to them. The value is having products uh, being reliable. Um, so let, you know, letting them know that the inventory is going to be there when they need it. Um, giving them low quantities compared to competitors. So it's not so much the price of the product. What they're looking for is, you know, just providing value on their end so that they can create a sustainable model from their side of it and create those projections. And um, so, you know, you're not in a race to the bottom on fighting for price with these competitors. You're just providing value in, in their eyes of what they're looking for. All right. Well, we appreciate the conversation. Had a good time with you all today. Thanks again to uh, Callie and Mitch there. And if you want to connect with Callie, go to collabproducts.com slash collab. Uh, you can also check out his uh, podcast, the N-Hype podcast, and everything else will be on Red Blue Collective. Um, and then also go buy some stuff from Mitch, pascots.com. Check it out. All of those links will be in our show notes. Do we switch scripts? Nope. Oh, you so can say thank you again. Thank you to our guests, <laughs> to our listeners. And like Corey said, everything's in the show notes. I'm just following the script. I know. Well, you didn't last night. so. Sorry. Oh, blame me. <laughs> yes. Okay, Mr. Sixpack. Yeah. All right. Um, if you want to work with us, if you want to connect with us, if you want to know anything about us, head on over to our website, sbpace.com. All of our social, everything is out there. Check it out. Yeah, we have a radio show. Mitch, did you know we have a radio show? We totally have a radio show. Callie was on it. I don't know if you listened to it or not, but you might want to go check it out. Our radio show is called Defeat the Chaos. It's on the Voice America Business Channel. We air live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern. But you can always catch the replay whenever you've got some free time or you're driving around in your car. Also, download and rate our podcast. Subscribe, give us a review. And if you have any topics you want to hear about, reach out and let us know. Don't forget to purchase our book, Seriously Now What? A Small Business Guide to Disaster Preparedness. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. We have a digital workbook download available on our website. And if you've already purchased and read it, please rate and review it. I'm Julie. And I'm Corey. And this was BizQuick, leveraging partnerships to help you grow your business.